Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and we left off with verse 31, so we'll start with uh, verse 32. Mark 14 is the longest chapter. It has 72 verses in it, and we got about halfway through it last week. So let's pick it up as the Lord now leaves the Passover supper, and uh, they're headed out to where they would usually stay in a place in Gethsemane. So Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Then he came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Uh, Gethsemane, actually, there's a lot of um, olive trees. Matter of fact, um, they have a, a church that's called the Church of the Nations. And... Um, they have, they have trees there that sometimes they tell you they go back to the time of the Lord, which would be 2,000 years old. Uh, the reason that's not possible is when um, Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 70 AD, they leveled everything, including the trees that would have been on the Mount of Gethsemane. But the ones that are there um, could easily date back to 70 AD. Gethsemane means olive press, and this is very appropriate because of uh, what the Lord, um, I'm going to try to describe it, I'm going to try to put it in words, but I'll tell you now there's no way any human can. But Gethsemane is exactly what Jesus went through. He was being pressed to the point when you have an olive uh, press, Um, It presses out the olive oil. The pressure that was on the Lord when he was in Gethsemane was to such an extreme. It doesn't tell us here in Mark, but it tells us in other Gospels that he sweat great drops of blood. And um, it was because of the tremendous crushing that he himself was going through. So he told his disciples, Peter, Peter, James, and John, to sit Uh, here and pray and he took Peter James and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed and then he said to them my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death stay here and watch now we've all gone through difficult times we've all been sorrowful Um, we've all been under pressure we've all been under stress Uh, but not to this degree This is something that could only happen to Jesus. And when he says, even to death, um, so he goes a little bit farther, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it was possible, that this hour might pass from him. Um, In John's gospel, John is unique. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels because they're similar. John is different. John has no genealogies. Uh, John writes about seven miracles and seven I am statements. But also the number seven comes up a time and time and time again in John's gospel. And seven times in John's gospel, Jesus will say, my hour has not yet come. The first time he said it was at the first miracle of turning the water into wine. 
and um, the wine had run out, and um, it was could have been an insult to the the host. And so Mary approaches Jesus, saying, "The wine has run out," expecting him to do something about it. But what he's told his mother is, "My hour has not yet come," and that's the first of the seven. My hour has not yet come, sayings in the Gospel of John. Well, here um, in Matthew 14, verse, if you look down in verse 41, it says the hour has come. In John's Gospel, this would have been the last time. So now his hour had come. His very reason for coming to um, this earth and taking on human flesh It's starting to sink in, the enormity of what's about to take place. And um, he went a little farther, and he said, if it's possible, the hour might pass from me. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus actually is asking the Father, even though he knows this was his reason for coming, he's basically saying it this way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way that man's can be restored to you without me going to the cross, then that's what I want to happen. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And in verse 36 here, um, this is how we should pray. Lord, this is what I want to happen, but I don't know if that's the best thing for my life or not. You do. So whatever your will is, that's what I want to have happen. Good place for an amen. And it's important for us to learn that. Uh, Too much of what's going on today is just the opposite of that. The word faith movement, um, the power of positive confession, is just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. They say there's power in your words. Be careful (laughs) what you say because your words have faith as if you you were God or something. And um, uh, here, what the Bible teaches is just the opposite. The Lord is saying, if there's any other way that you can redeem mankind, then that's what I'm praying for. That's what I want. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. So again, when the false teaching is out there and we have scriptures like this, I like to put it out. This goes contrary to what the scriptures teach about prayer. You have the faith in your your words should be dependent upon um, Lord, if this is what you want. James goes as far as to say, you pray you don't get what you want because you pray it to consume it upon your own lusts. You're not praying to maybe further the work of of the Lord, um, but you're praying to actually have things um, be more comfortable for you, more prosperous or, or whatever. And James says that's why your prayers aren't answered. So let's continue. Then he came and he found... Um, He goes back to Peter, James, and John, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? And um, 
I don't think that I don't think Peter, James, and John have a clue of what's going on here. Except the Lord said that he was troubled even to death, and he said, You stay here and, and watch. And he says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And here is a real reality scripture right here. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And um, the example we used last week, um, as we're in Mark 14, of course, is Peter's uh, saying that he would never, ever, never happen. I would never, ever deny you. And the Lord says, Peter, tonight you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And um, I believe that when Peter said, I will never deny you, I'll die for you, I believe he actually meant it. He was um, a man, his strong suit would have been his courage, and the Lord allowed him to fail in his strong suit. And so he asked him to pray, but they were tired. Watch him pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh truly is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. So again he goes back and he says, if there's any other way, Lord, Father, then I pray. But nevertheless not, my will be done but yours. And when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. You ever wake up out of a dead sleep and somebody's talking to you? (laughs) They didn't know what to say because they were sacked out and they were tired. Then it came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, the Lord already told Judas, as we studied last week, that um, Judas comes right out and says, am I the one? And he says, yep, you're the one. And... Uh, he went and made arrangements with the um, religious leaders to sell Jesus out, as you know, for 30 pieces of silver. From 43 to 52, we have the betrayal here of Judas. And we're told, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude, came with clubs and Swords, they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Um, Jesus said concerning Judas, it would have been better if this man had never ever been born. Now that's a pretty heavy thing to say. Um, To be the one responsible for betraying the Lord, and the Lord said, it'd be better, Judas, if you had never been born than the judgment that now is before you. He had made an arrangement that they would know which one to arrest because he said, I'll go up to the, to the one so you recognize him and I'm gonna give him a kiss and then you'll know. So verse 44, now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whoever I kiss, when he's one, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately, there's that word again, 
he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Well, we know that Mark is concise. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. We know that there's a whole lot more that happened here. What Mark isn't telling us is when they came, they said, we're looking for Jesus. And he said, I am. Now, there's at least 400 of them there. And when he said, I am, they all fell down. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up. And just so everybody knows who's in charge here, when he said, I am, it is the same Greek word that we, if you translate it to the Hebrew, that was the voice that came out of the burning bush to Moses. I am. I am that I am. And when Jesus said, I am, they went down. (laughs) And like I like to say, if they would have been smart, they would have stayed down (laughs) or at least gone home. So, but all all Mark does here is he gets to the point and they say they laid hands on him. Well, they didn't lay hands on him until Peter took out his sword and started swapping it around, takes off the ear of the high priest, and Jesus, this is the last miracle that Jesus does, reaches down, picks up the ear, and puts it back on. Mark doesn't mention any of that, only that they came at this point, all the disciples were going to read are going to flee. In verse 47, and one of those who stood by, oh, it does mention it here, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you didn't take me. But the scripture must be fulfilled. If you get nothing out of the study tonight, but because this is such a monumental study because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, what you're going to see, verse after verse after verse after verse, is what we just read here, but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There are more prophecies being fulfilled in the judgment of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus um, in these uh, chapters of the Bible than anywhere else in the New Testament. And then verse seven, um, then verse seven, then they all forsook him and fled. If you're taking notes, you're gonna, the ones that we're gonna be referring to primarily is uh, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, I will be in Micah, we'll go to Psalm 22. Mark is the only one that tells us at this point when they laid hands on him, it looks like the disciples got away except for this young man mentioned in verse 51 and 52. Since it was a certain young man that followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. So there wasn't anything under this garment that he had underneath him. And the young man laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and he fled from them naked. More than likely, this is Mark writing about himself. He would have been about 12 or 13 years old. It is not recorded in Matthew, Luke, or John. Mark is the only one that brings brings, um, that up here. 
So, going on verse 53 to 65, we want to stop at 61. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And when they were assembled, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, but Peter followed him at a distance, uh, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and he warmed himself at the fire. Peter's hanging out behind. And um, evidently it was uh, cold that evening and um, the servants of the high priest were outside standing around some sort of fire and they warmed themselves. And the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find anything. They're looking to bring some sort of accusation against him. Um, Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Uh, The chief priest that describes probably came up and said, come up with something. But they got to remember that they have to keep the law themselves if they're Pharisees. And one of the things that we just studied um, in Deuteronomy, um, when it comes to making an accusation against another person, one person just couldn't do it. It had to be an agreement with two. You might say, why? Well, maybe you got mad at a guy and you got an ax to grind and you go up to him and you make up some story that isn't true. Um, but the other person wasn't with him. He doesn't have an ax to grind and he goes, that's not true. You're just making that up right now because you're upset with the guy. So you have to have two witnesses. So when it says their witnesses could not agree, they, they had to come up with something that would stick. And some arose up and bore false witness against him, saying, uh, where, where can I start here with the, um, um, all these are, this one is Psalm 27, verse 12, that's being fulfilled. Uh, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and with three days I will build another made without hands. But of course, when the Lord said that, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Uh, he, he, it wasn't a temple, uh, but he was talking about the temple, of course, of his own body and the resurrection. But not even then did their testimonies agree. So even that they could up agree with. And the high priest finally had enough, and he stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Okay, I'm just gonna stop here, and I'm gonna have you turn to Isaiah chapter 53, and you're gonna wanna keep your finger there because I'm gonna be coming back to it several times. Isaiah 53, looking at verse seven, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. My cross reference here from this verse is... um, um, 
Mark chapter 15, verse 4, and we find it, let's go back to Mark, actually 14, but here in verse 61 uh, is also the cross-reference to that where it's being fulfilled. So the high priest comes right out and asks them, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And again, the I am is significant here. And he goes on to clarify, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, I've heard people say Jesus never said he was God. My answer to that is, oh, yes, he did. And you're looking at it right here. This was a straight out question. Are you the Messiah? And the answer to that was, Jesus said, I am. This was blasphemy as far as the, um, uh, the high priest was concerned. And so he, in disgust, he tears his clothes and he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? We don't need witnesses. You've heard it right out of his own mouth. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to strike him. Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, uh, this is one, one of the places that Mark points out. We know that the soldiers are going to do this a little later. When Jesus is handed over as a condemned criminal to be crucified, it's now fair game for uh, the Roman soldiers to have whatever sport they want with this condemned man. But even before he gets there, this is still uh, when he's standing before the high priest, they put a cloth over his head and then they began to mock him and spit on him and to beat him. And so the beating has already um, uh, begun on all the way up to verse 65. Um, Isaiah 52, as long as I told you to keep your finger in um, Isaiah 53, but let's go back to Isaiah 52. This was also being fulfilled in verse 14. I believe it's twofold. I believe it's what happened with the high priest, but I believe it also happened with the guards. Um, Isaiah 52, verse 14 says, just as many were astonished at you, so his vestige or his face was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. We're talking about the physical beating that, that uh, uh, the Lord took this partic- particular night. 66 through 72 is the Lord said, Peter, tonight, You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the ser- servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you are with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. What are you talking about? And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him again and began to say those who stood by, this is one of the guys that was with Jesus. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Well, this tells us that evidently up in Galilee, they had sort of a slang or a twang or an accent of some sort that distinguished them from um, being in Jerusalem. And um, this verse 71 really amazes me because here's Peter. Again, he prided himself in what his strong suit was. Though they all deny you, not me, Lord, I will die. I can understand these other guys flaking out on you, but not me. I would never, ever do that. And I believe he was sincere. But again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he not only denies, but we read here that he began to curse and swear. Simon Peter, the, really the one that's the writer of this particular gospel, First and Second Peter, the one who preached on um, 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 Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved. Yeah, it's the same Peter. He began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the second time the rooster crowed and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he went out and wept. And he realized, I can't believe what I just did. One of the Gospels tells us it's at this point that the Lord actually turned and looked at Peter. And um, it's often, you know, you wonder what kind of look was this. Boy, Peter, you really let me down this time. No, the Lord knows all things. Peter, I told you this was going to happen. It, was, it wasn't a look of condemnation. It was, a, it was a look of, oh, Peter, your spirit, you wanted to do the right thing, but you will always fail in your strong suit. The Lord will let you fail in your strong suit. Uh, does not it say, I, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Good place for an amen. But without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Now that's a hard lesson to learn. Because we can think we can pull some things off on our own. I can handle this one. And um, yet the Lord will let you fail in that area till you know that without him you can do nothing. But with him, all things are possible. Well, we made it to the longest chapter, chapter 14. Brings us to chapter 15. If you're taking notes, the outline goes something like this. Jesus is brought before Pilate in verses one through six. Um, Then Jesus is going to be condemned and Barabbas is gonna be released, seven through 15. Jesus is going to be crowned with thorns, verses 16 to 23. The Lord is gonna be crucified, 24 to 41. And then Jesus is committed to Joseph um, because Joseph goes and asks for the body of Jesus in verses 42 to 47. Let's look at the first uh, four verses here. What's the reoccurring word? What do we want to learn about Mark? What's the reoccurring word? 
Immediately. So what do we have the first word here? Immediately. In the morning. Well, what does that mean? Well, they came to take Jesus at night, remember? That means the Lord has been up all night long. And in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Um, The Jews had no authority to execute their own. Um, Capital punishment for, uh, if you were Jewish, was uh, stoning. But the Romans were the one that had the final say in authority. Even though they wanted to kill him, they had to persuade Pilate to make that declaration. Rome was in charge, and Pilate is the governor. Um, Let me just get a little sidetracked here. The Bible is always right. Archaeologists are always wrong. Can I say that again? The Bible is always right, and archaeologists are always wrong. They said, there is no archaeological evidence for Pontius Pilate that's ever been found. And that went on for many, many, many centuries. Until they were doing some excavating um, down by Caesarea, beautiful place right on the Mediterranean. And um, they have a replica of a stone there. And it was signed by Pontius Pilate. The original has been taken and it's in some museum in uh, Europe. But it finally came around to show that the Bible was right and the archaeologist was wrong. And that will always be the case. Another good place for an amen. We got archaeological proof, they're finally catching up with the Bible, <laughs> that indeed Pontius Pilate um, was the Roman governor at that time. Then Pilate um, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to them, yeah, it's, it's as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. So what's going on here is Pilate is interrogating the Lord, asking him straight out questions, all the while the chief priests are trying to stir the pot and rile things up. And they began just railing on making up accusations against him. But again, he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things that they testify you against you, but still Jesus answered nothing, so that uh, Pilate marveled. Um, I wonder what, what it must be like to have God standing before you. And you're a judge, an overseer, hopefully a man with some sort of discernment, and you go, what's up with this man here? I've never met anything like this. Now, what we're not told here, because, again, Mark just gets to the point. Let me just read a little bit. Um, Let's turn here. Let's go to the Gospel of John and fill in some of the blanks here um, with what's taking place. When we compare the Gospel of John, we find that there was a great deal 
of uh, interplay between Pilate and the religious rulers as Pilate actually sought to deliver Jesus. He took him on the inside to talk to him. Then he came back out and then he took him in again, hoping to get some cooperation. But Pilate found out that he had to stand on his own two feet and make a decision relative to Jesus. Pilate then thought he could get off the hook by releasing a prisoner. This man just couldn't believe that anyone would ask for Barabbas to be delivered for Jesus to be crucified. He really thought that he had found a solution to the dilemma he found himself in. Now remember, Pilate's wife came to him. She said, look, I had a dream last night, honey. And you don't want anything to do with this righteous man. So if you're in John chapter 19, let's pick it up in verse five. Then Jesus went out uh, wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to him, behold the man. Before that, in verse three, Pilate then went out again and said to them, behold, I bring him out to you that you may know I, I don't find any fault in him. He says that four times. Now, what is going on, Jesus, of course, is a fulfillment of the Passover. They just had the Passover meal. And he said, this is the last time I'm gonna have it with you until we're in the kingdom. So what the people would have been doing for the three days previous to this is that they would take a young lamb It had to be without blemish, without any marks on the body whatsoever. And they would actually bring the lamb into the house so that the kids could actually have some sort of affection and fondness um, uh, towards this little lamb. And then they would have to take it and present it as a sin offering for them. This was the Passover. Well, that's why Pilate had to examine Jesus. What John tells us here, that he took him in and out, and as he's trying to talk to the Lord, he, he knows that he's innocent. So he's in a jam. His wife says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. He's trying to get Jesus off the hook so he has him scourged, hoping that would pacify the crowd. It did not. And then the custom, Roman custom, was that once a year on Passover, Um, they would release a prisoner. And so, picking it up in verse five, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said, behold the man. And he wanted him to look, look, we beat him up pretty bad, we scourged him. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was even more afraid. He said, if ever God was in a man's body, this is him. And uh, by the, the way that Jesus handled himself, Again, looking into the eyes of the creator. That's what what Pilate was doing here. I mean, he's going eyeball to eyeball with the creator of the universe. And there's something troubling Pilate. And he doesn't want anything to do with him. Um, Verse 9, and again, he went into the praetorium. 
Um, we know where that is located on the Temple Mount. We found the, the remains. I've been in the remains of the Praetorium many times. He says, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said to them, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and to release you? And Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, which is in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it would have been the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Back to Mark's gospel. So what we have in the first Oh, four verses here. Um, there was a lot more going on between Pilate and uh, Jesus, but when it came right down to his job, and um, they declared that he says he's the king of the Jews, he says, look, we're Romans. We only have one king, and that's Caesar. You want to be, uh, you want him to be your king, or do you want Caesar to be your king? Well, now his job is on the line, and he backs down. All right, let's pick it up in verse, let's pick it up at verse seven. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow insurrectionists and they had committed murder in the insurrection. Then the multitudes, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as had always been done for them. But Pilate answered, them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. This is something John really brings to the forefront, why they hated Jesus. And it says in John, because they would lose their position and place. Why? Because all the multitudes were following Jesus. And they were... um, uh, they were losing their prominence and they were losing their position to this man called Jesus. So Pilate was savvy enough to realize these guys are envious of Jesus because everybody loves him and is following him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And so they cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more exceedingly, crucify him. There was one thing that Pilate was sure of, and that is that Jesus was innocent and that the real reason this charade was going on and they were so upset was because of nothing more than envy on the part of the religious leaders. Well, this brings us to verses 15 to 23. I'm gonna stop in verse 19. 
So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers, by the way, that is, um, uh, this is where we want to, what, where you want to start counting. And remember how I always like to say, wherever there's an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled, I want to point it out so you can see that the Bible is a book about prophecy. Another good place for an amen. The Bible's a good book about prophecy. It's all about prophecy. All right. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole congregation, and they clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowed the knee, and they worshipped him. Um, Let's go here to the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 1. I'll give you a chance to make your way back to the minor prophets. Micah is right after Jonah, and it's right before the book of Nahum. So Micah, chapter 5, Micah chapter five, in verse, uh, back at Mark it says, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowed the knee and they worshiped him. Now in Micah chapter five, verse one, now gather yourself in troops, O daughters of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. And here, this is a prophecy of him right before he's crucified, but what's the very next verse? This is Micah 5.2, the very verse that gives the prophecy of his birth. Uh, but notice it's not in a chronological order. Now that's important too, because that, when you're, like when you're studying the book of Daniel, Daniel is not in a chronological order. And you go, well, it should be in a chronological order. No, not at all. It's not in a chronological order here. We have his death in verse one, and we have his birth where he's going to be born in verse two. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, even from everlasting. So... Back to Mark chapter 15, verse 19, is a fulfillment of Micah 5.1, but also we already went, read the one from uh, Isaiah 52, verse 14, where he would be marred more than any man. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and let, up, let him off to crucify him. Now they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexandra and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Um, the scourging of the Lord, he would have lost a lot of blood. Um, he was weak, he had been up all night He'd received these beatings, and so he broke under the pressure of the the cross, and um, 
I often thought it would be good to be this guy because it's true, you can't do anything um, for your salvation. There's nothing we can do. Jesus is the only one that could um, die on a cross. But what an honor it must be for this man that he had the opportunity to um, bear uh, the cross for the Lord. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. I'm gonna put it up on the screen for you, for those of you who have never been to Israel. This is a picture um, just outside the Damascus Gate, uh, maybe 200 yards to the north. Um, you come across this um, skull. Uh, this is a, this picture is almost a hundred years old. And for all my years in going to Israel, the crown has always been there. See the bridge of the nose. You can see the two eyes printed in, and you can see the bridge. But whether it was vandalism or just um, years of uh, decay, uh, the the crown of the nose, that narrow little strip there, is no longer there. Um, I actually believe that this is an A site. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church have built a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, it's in uh, the, the Jewish, no, the Christian quarter. Um, but the only reason they say that's the place is when Constantine's mother um, came to the Holy Land, she went around declaring where all these holy sites were, just by hearsay. Where was he crucified? Well, some people say over here, some people say, well, I'd say it's right here. Okay, well, we'll build a great big Catholic church over it. When you go to Capernaum, and um, that's where Peter lived, Simon Peter. That's where Jesus healed Peter's wife's mother. And she goes to Capernaum and says, well, where did Peter live? Well, some say he lived over here and some say he lived over there. Well, I say he lived right here in this house. Okay, so they built a great big Catholic church over it. <laughs> and it has, it looks like a spaceship. And it has a glass floor so that you can go into the church and actually look down on what um, Constantine's mother said was the place where Simon Peter lived. That's not, that's not the place where Simon Peter lived. The probability, not very good. But what else is in Capernaum is a first century synagogue. And, well, I should say it was built on the foundation of a first century synagogue. And the one that's there now, um, Jesus would have stood on that particular place. It's one of the few places that you can go to, besides, I think, this place here, and say that Jesus was actually st stood on this particular piece of land. And it's an original, the foundation is an original synagogue that would have existed when Jesus was making Capernaum, that was his headquarters. So I'll leave that, I wanna leave that up for the rest of the study until I get to the garden tomb. So they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. I personally believe um, that this is also the place that Abraham offered 
Isaac to the Lord. The Lord told Abraham, take your son, now your only son whom you love, to, a pl- to the land of Moriah, to a place that I will show you. Uh, this is Mount Moriah. Um, if you're Jewish, they will tell you that where the Dome of the Rock is on a Temple Mount is where Abraham offered Isaac. David would have bought that piece of land um, uh, and it became um, Solomon's Temple at, at, at one time and then later Herod's Temple. And they say this is where Abraham offered Isaac. Well, I don't think so because when you read what Abraham said, you know, he didn't go through with the act. The Lord stopped him. And he knew, the scripture tells us in the New Testament, that he was acting out something by faith. We know that he believed that God could have resurrected him if he would have killed him. But he goes on to make a prophecy. And he goes on to say, but it shall be seen in the mount of the Lord. In other words, Abraham knew he was acting out something. He says, it didn't happen here, but it's going to be seen, future tense. In the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. Well, what's the mount of the Lord? Mount Moriah. The Temple Mount is 742, um, um, not feet, um, 742 feet above sea level, okay? This place right here at the top of that is 777 feet above sea level. Isn't that an interesting number? And if you're going to make an offering, don't you usually go to the top of the hill? Why stop halfway down? Anyway, if you believe it's somewhere else, that's, that's fine. You're, you're wrong, but that's, that's fine. You can believe that if you want to. But uh, obviously, you can go there today and still see uh, the skull. Verse 23, then he gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not drink it. This would have been with the myrrh mixed to numb any pain, and the Lord would have none of that. He was going to receive the full weight of what he asked the father to remove from him, and when the father said no, he realized that he was gonna take it all on himself. Verse 24 through 26, when they crucified him, They divided his garment, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Okay, if you're taking notes, that is um, uh, from Isaiah. Now, it was the third hour, and they crucified him. So this would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. Remember, he had been up all night. Now he was scourged. And now, 9 o'clock in the morning, for the next six hours, Jesus is going to be on the cross. And the inscription of his accusation was written above. With him, they also crucified two robbers on the right hand and the other on the left hand. All right, we're going to start counting right here. That's Isaiah 53, verse 9. Let's go back there. We're going to go back and forth between Isaiah 53. So verse 9 here. Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So that was being fulfilled there. 
Verse 28, so the scripture was fulfilled, which says that he was numbered with the transgressors. 53, verse 12. Um, If you're in 53 again. Therefore I divided him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Back to verse 29. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it again in three days. That's Psalm 22, verse 6, Psalm 69, verse 7, Psalm 109, verse 25. All of these are being fulfilled as they're wagging um, their heads. Let's just look at Psalm 22 instead of going to all three of them. Psalm 22, verse six tells us, those, or seven, those who look at me, laugh me to scorn, they shoot out their lips, they shake their heads, saying he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. So, Verse six, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. And that's being fulfilled um, here in verse 26. Back to uh, Mark 15. Likewise, the chief priests also together with the scribes mocked and said among themselves, he saved others, himself he cannot save. That's Psalm 69, verse 19, another prophecy. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. Then, verse 8, now 33, now when the sixth hour had come, so this would be high noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 to 3, no sunlight. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamini Sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this is how Psalm 22 begins. Word for word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by, when they heard it, said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered him to drink saying let him alone let's see if Elijah will come to take him down and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last then the veil of the temple was torn in two top to bottom it's important that it mentions that it was done from the top to the bottom um, because it was the father that was the one that was taking the veil, that which separates God from man, um, that was now wide open. The price had been paid. No more high priest to make intercession. Man has direct access to God. Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. No more high priest. So the veil in the temple was rent, and when the centurion who stood opposite him cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
and there were also a woman looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Solomon, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So when the disciples traveled, these women would go along and I suppose prepare meals and cook things and look after them. Verses 42 to 47 is... Now when the evening had come, because it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent country member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead, because it usually took a couple days for this to happen. And he summoned the centurion and asked if he had been dead for some time. And when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought the fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewed out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. We're going to read in just a little bit that um, it was a large stone. And I'm going to put a picture of, it's probably about 200 yards from what we just saw to this place right here. It's all part of the same complex. It's run by the Brits. And they have different places where you can sit down and have Bible studies. I would say at least 20 different spots, some for small groups, some for big groups. And um, if you look down at the bottom of this door here, you'll see about a foot tall uh, roll of stones. Does everybody see what I'm looking at here? Okay, we know that we have, when we go to Israel, we'll actually stop along the roadside and see an average tomb. And I would say an average stone for an average tomb was about that, that tall. This one had to be as tall as that door and that's why that chamber there was for the roll, uh, to be able to roll the stone. And it would have been a, before, when we get to 16, it's going to tell us it was a very large stone. All right, let's pick it up with our last chapter. Babel's finished mark. The outline for the last chapter here is the arrival of the woman at the tomb, the announcement of the angel that Jesus had risen, the appearance of Jesus, um, let me say it this way, the appearances, not just one appearance, but in the plural, appearances, appearances of Jesus, and then the ascension. Mark 16. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and, and Salmon, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. The body was not prepared. The sun was going down. The Sabbath was coming. They broke the legs of the other two that were hanging on the cross. Jesus was already dead, but to make sure, they plunged a spear into his side and blood and water came out. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was a very large one. So this tells us, this gives me, um, first of all, this, is, this would have been a rich man's garden. Um, it was probably Joseph's personal one. And they have a cistern there that's as big as this room and about, I would say, at somewhere between 25 and 40 feet deep. And that was used just as a, a, a cistern that shows the wealth of the man who owned this piece of property. Joseph of Arimathea would have fit, fit the bill for that. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So the young man here is an angel. So evidently, some angels look like young men. (laughs) But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, I believe when Peter went out and wept bitterly, I think he just checked himself out from being a disciple. He says, I I can't undo what I did, but I certainly can't be with the other guys. So here, it doesn't just say tell the disciples. It says, make sure you tell Peter too. That he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, and he said to you, as he has said to you, and they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Lord um, had risen, an angel was speaking to them, and they, they're just scared to death. Now when he arose on the first day of the week, he appeared first, now here's the order of events of what's gonna, who he appears to, and Mark again sort of doesn't give us details about Cleopas and his buddy on the road to Emmaus about Mary. He just sort of summarizes it. Um, He appeared first to Mary. She was demon-possessed with seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they didn't believe. And after that, now this would have been in the morning, now in the afternoon, after that he appeared in another form. This is one of the places that Mark points out that is important to see that Jesus purposely was changing his appearance. And it says he appeared in another form to the two of them as they walked and went into their country. That's all it tells us. The other gospel writers give us the whole story about Cleopas and his friends. And they went and told it to to theirs, but they did not believe them either. Afterwards, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at table. So early in the morning, Mary Magdalene. Afternoon, Cleopas and his friends. That evening he appears to the disciples while they're hiding out for fear from the Jews. As they sat at the table, (laughs) I have to laugh. He rebukes them. 
because of their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Why are we here tonight? Somewhere in your life, somebody told you about Jesus. Somewhere, somehow. And you checked it out and uh, you decided you're either going to believe this or not. And here are the apostles. They got the message. He's alive. We've seen him. He appeared to us on the road. Oh, by the way, he appeared to Peter too. He had a one-on-one with Peter. But he chides them here. Um, John gives us a completely different take on this first appearance. When he appears, they're scared half to death, and the Lord says, peace, it's me. Verse 15, they didn't believe, and he said to them, and this is, um, ties in good with Sunday's message because this is how we concluded Sunday's message with the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he do, who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We're told, again, Mark doesn't get into the details, but there were two angels. They said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing at Jesus who's being taken up into heaven? And the angel says, this same Jesus is going to come back to this very spot. If you're taking notes, that's Zechariah. Um, chapter 12 or 14, where it says when he comes back, he's gonna put his feet back on the Mount of Olives and there'll be a great earthquake and it'll split in two. The angel said this very same Jesus, and the way that he left, he's gonna come back. So that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're praying for. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. I want want to close and leave you with this thought. Notice the order. First the teaching of the word, but then it's confirmed through the signs. What's happening in some of the weird churches today It's all about signs and wonders and no word. No, it's the other way around. It's the word first, and if the word is accurate with the scripture, it'll be confirmed um, uh, with the signs, and they would be legitimate. And then it has this great closing, amen, and everybody said, and we finish the Gospel of Mark. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, what can we say for all that you've done for us. We can't comprehend that you tasted death for every human being who ever lived. That you somehow, some way, allowed the sin of every man to be placed upon you. Coming here tonight, listening to a Bruce Carroll song called The Great Exchange, indeed that's exactly what it is. You gave us your righteousness, You took our sin, the greatest exchange in human history. And Lord, all we can 
say is thank you and um, make us instruments of your peace. Help us look for opportunities to fulfill what you've asked us to do, to go into all the world, not be ashamed, give us boldness to speak the truth in love. Some will hear, some won't, but at least, Lord, we'll be following what you've asked us to do. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Mark, and as we continue on through your word, we just pray that you would go before us as we seek to teach your word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And Lord, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And there will be a great earthquake, and it will split in two. The angel said this very same Jesus, and the way that he left, he's going to come back. So that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're praying for. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. I want, want to close and leave you with this thought. Notice the order. First the teaching of the word, but then it's confirmed through the signs. What's happening in some of the weird churches today, it's all about signs and wonders and no word. No, it's the other way around. It's the word first, and if the word is accurate with the scripture, it'll be confirmed um, uh, with the signs, and they would be legitimate. And then it has this great closing, amen, and everybody said, and we finish the gospel of Mark. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, what can we say for all that you've done for us? We can't comprehend that you tasted death for every human being who ever lived. That you somehow, some way, allowed the sin of every man to be placed upon you. Coming here tonight, listening to a Bruce Carroll song called The Great Exchange, indeed that's exactly what it is. You gave us your righteousness, you took our sin. The greatest exchange in human history. And Lord, all we can say is thank you and um, make us instruments of your peace. Help us look for opportunities to fulfill what you've asked us to do, to go into all the world, not be ashamed, give us boldness to speak the truth in love. Some will hear, some won't, but at least, Lord, we'll be following what you've asked us to do. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Mark. And as we continue on through your word, we just pray that you would go before us as we seek to teach your word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And Lord, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.